Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex. I qualified as an MD in Syria before studying an MBA, a computer science PhD, and a master's of bioengineering at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. I am now building Sky Therapeutics, which is a digital therapeutic startup developing therapeutic video games. My name's Shad, and I'm a physician and Harvard MBA and a co-founder of a digital therapeutic startup called Sky Therapeutics. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Sherman. Michael is currently a venture partner at RA Capital. Formerly, Michael was an executive vice president and the chief medical officer at Point32 Health, which is the merger of the Harvard Pilgrim Health Plan and Tufts Health Plan. Point32 Health covers around 2.3 million lives across multiple states. Michael is known to be a pioneer in developing outcomes-based payment agreements and bringing novel interventions to patients. He signed the first outcomes-based contract for a gene therapy in the U.S. Michael holds an MD from Yale University, an MBA from Harvard Business School, and a master's and bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Michael, thanks for joining us and welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path. Well, it's great to be here and uh, discussing some really timely topics with you and your listeners. Amazing. We're really excited. So, Michael, again, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. We're excited to explore your story today. So to put things into perspective for our audience, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your path to medical school, and what was it that got you off the beaten path? Yeah, well, um, it's a great question and um, one that I get a lot. How did you get to where you're at? And uh, I was even at a cocktail party and someone asked me, a physician, how does one get to be chief medical officer for Point32 Health? And and I said, I I never planned to be. That's not an answerable question. I just have done things that I've been interested in and and taken advantage of opportunities and kind of the the positions find you. Because at a certain point, you are you unique enough that it's hard to, um, you know, a lot of these things you don't even apply for, they really have to find you. And um, so it gets back to just following your instincts and your dreams and, um, w- you know, where you think you can make a difference. So, um, for, you know, for example, um, you know, a number of years ago, I was practicing medicine and um, actually as a cardiac anesthesiologist. And um, I became interested in um, opportunities to expand and was at a hospital that was looking to significantly upgrade their cardiac surgery program. And um, that that provided me an opportunity to do some things beyond the practice setting. But I also um, came to realize um, how um, honestly poorly managed many hospitals are, or at least were at that time, kind of mom and pop shops, even though they were significant organizations and not doing a lot of things that are common sense. And it, it also um, became clear that as a physician, uh, which has it su- such a strong brand that people assume, no, you're not going to be a good uh, business person or leader of people. You're all about ego. There's, there's a lot of assumptions there. And so I, I went and pursued an MBA um, both to learn um, a lot and as well as create new relationships and uh, that opened doors that I would have not otherwise had and then I you know started doing things that were um, of interest uh, I, I'll share though um, and this may surprise people when I was in medical school um, at Yale um, 
you know, I observed the way that physicians who were medical directors were treated. It was definitely not cool at that time asking about why aren't you practicing this more cost-effective approach? And they'd come by on rounds and it was clear that they were not the cool kids, not what you want to be doing. So when I was in med school, um, I remember thinking I'm going to practice medicine the rest of my life. I don't understand these people who go off to get business degrees or others or why anyone would do that. And so it was surprising to me when um, after, you know, getting um, board certified and residency and practicing a little bit, I made a decision to go off and get my MBA. And then um, in business school, you know, there's so much you can do at that, that point with those enhanced credentials. And I, I, one of the things I was sure I would never do was work for a health plan. Because having had an experience as a physician, I knew that all I would do is look to say no. And, and I couldn't think of a worse job uh, to be doing as a, a Harvard MBA. Um, now, it turned out I did wind up in, in that space, obviously, through um, serendipity and just different roles. And and um, and it just kind of proceeded. But I, I will say that I do the job the way I like to do it, which is focusing on doing what's right, on innovating and making a difference. And I think I do get to do it differently than my counterparts in many organizations. Uh, thank you, Michael. That's very interesting. And, and I think it's a very good link to kind of my next question. So you've mentioned that initially you didn't think that uh, you would go and work for a health plan, but essentially when you joined health plan, your focus was on doing things the, the right way and you focused on innovation. And so over the last, uh, over the last decade uh, or more, you've been a pioneer and an advocate for outcome-based payment agreements. And so, for example, you've signed the nation's first uh, such VBA for a gene therapy, and through that, you've paved the way for the development of innovative financing models for novel therapeutic solutions, uh, such as such as gene therapy. And on the other hand, you've set the path for other health plans to say no to drugs in which data does not support coverage. For example, I'm specifically thinking here about Adrahalm. And so through these decisions, you know, you've asserted thought leadership in the space. So I'm really curious, what was your mental model to thinking through these key decisions? And what were the resources that you relied on for your decision making? Yeah, again, that's a really broad question. Uh, so let me tackle it kind of in, in pieces, if you would. Um, so you know, there's generally a playbook that says if you have a drug for an unmet need and um, and it's FDA approved, it'll be covered and made available regardless of the data, regardless of what you charge, regardless of anything. And uh, that's usually how things work. And, you know, Agilehelm was really a unique situation where there, there were so many problems with it including the lack of demonstrated efficacy, which was a, a challenge. But on top of that, the fact that we did know that there were, it was a fairly high rate of complications of brain bleeding and swelling called ARIA. So that was sure. And then they charged a price that was really unthinkable, given the impact of the drug and the size of the market. And so, you know, all those came together to create something that I didn't think we should cover. Now, you asked about tools and like, we were one of the first to come out not covering it. And, and again, for the if there's a playbook here on the health plan size, it says that you, you you don't take risks. You kind of look around and see what other people are doing and, um, you know, don't come out ahead. Don't, and, and I saw that as a leadership opportunity. So even internally, you know, we realized that it was not really a drug that we should be looking to cover for, for all of those and, and more reasons. Um, my colleagues wanted just to say nothing. And I said, um, I disagreed. I said, you know, people question what health plans do and the value they bring. 
if we think this is the right thing for our members, let's go out on, on a positive note and make it about the safety issues. Um, and, and we did that. And to my surprise, we didn't get um, pulverized in the press, which, which frequently happens. I'll say that beyond the tools and just really it's looking at the data, but it's also doing it what's right. And my, my true north personally is asking, what would you want for yourself or a family member? Knowing what you know, which is, you know, more than your average person on the street, even even with a computer and Google. And on this one, again, and I say this having, um, you know, relatives who've had Alzheimer's and friends who lost um, loved ones to Alzheimer's, that it, it's a real problem. I don't not take it seriously. But knowing what the risk profile was and what the data showed, I, I wasn't sold that I'd wanted for myself or a family member. Um, the other the other thing that's become clear uh, as a payer is that we're in this um, time of great transformations, whether it's digital therapeutics, as you certainly know, or transformational therapies, one-time gene therapies, et cetera, precision medicine, which were things that did not exist um, a decade or two ago because the science wasn't there. So the good news is we've managed to innovate as, as an industry and, and, and develop the science, come out with these breakthroughs. One challenge is that the financing system is not one that was designed for these shocks, right? It's last year, it's last decade and last century and frankly, last millennium, right? Which did not contemplate any of these. So you're running into the situation where it can be hard to cover drugs because we don't have a system designed for it, which I think is, is a lousy reason to say no to something. If there's safety issues, if there's efficacy issues, if there's not, you know, there, that's not to say we shouldn't look for high value approaches, but that, that in itself is not a reason to say no. So I think that that suggests there's an opportunity for payers like myself and my organization to think differently, to partner with industry, to figure out how do you pay for these. And, and, and as importantly, because we, we do a lot of these value-based agreements and the like, not just for drugs, but for others, um, you know, in doing so, um, how do you create real-world evidence? So, you know, we don't talk about that as much in, in, you know, when there's press release and headlines. But the fact is, with many of these new innovations, um, they're, they're tested in very carefully controlled settings with patients who are carefully chosen, uh, with physicians who are chosen because they do a lot of it and are true believers, and they're all getting compensated for that. They're followed by CROs and clinical research associates, and if they don't do what, quote-unquote, they're supposed to Someone intervenes, but that isn't how things work in the real world for many of us who deal with multiple um, provider systems, patients of all different understandings, are very heterogeneous, and so on. So, which is to say, sometimes your mileage varies, um, and that's one of the reasons that even when payers are shown data, particularly if it's limited, um, they, um, you know, they, you know, may be a little reticent to cover something. And there are opportunities to collaborate, not only that brings some coverage to the table, but also create a, a kind of a real world test and spin off that real world evidence, which others can use to make decisions. And that's something we certainly have seen. That's a great answer, Michael. And I guess a quick follow up question there is how do you pick those battles, meaning that as an organization and as a leader, you have limited bandwidth of picking the uh, picking and focusing on the problems where you want to demonstrate leadership in the space. And so I was wondering if you can share a little bit more about your thinking on how you pick these, these battles and identify the topics that you want to dedicate bandwidth and capacity to, to providing thought leadership in. Sure. You know, that, that's really a great question. And, um, you know, some of it is strategic. Um, some of it is serendipitous. 
Um, so, you know, what, what I would say is when you think proactively, strategically, where we, where we want to focus, um, I like looking at the, at the problems that others haven't solved. And one thing you learn over time about what you're solved, what you're good at and not good at, and I've learned I'm good at seeing um, things across the industry from different aspects and putting them together to create solutions. So um, I'm really excited about the things that have tremendous impact, but, um, but we haven't figured out how to make them available. Um, so when I think about um, what is on the radar screen, you know, you can you can narrow it down to a few large areas. And, um, you know, again, payers generally um, and they're, you know, the different flavors of payers, but they're very focused on like like all businesses on what are the current year's problems. It's very hard to find the effort to plan ahead. Yet there are things that are coming that are likely to create challenges over coming years. So when I think about those, um, I think about things like transformational therapeutics, not just one-time gene therapies. And there is there are a few out there, but there's a certainly a, a large pipeline of many hundreds in phase one, phase two, and, and even phase three. And if we have the good fortune for them to work, we're going to have to figure out how do we pay for them without breaking the bank. Because again, if they're effective, we should figure out a way to make them available. Um, that's certainly one obvious area, but there's also many other drugs for rare diseases which have similar issues. Um, they may be for small populations. Um, they they may have no competition, so they tend to have high price tags. Now, there, that's, that's a, a whole different issue than what is an appropriate price, but in many cases, a high price may be warranted. So the question is, how do you actually make the system work for those people? A second area is precision medicine, whether it's whole genome sequencing or things that will like the GRAIL um, and other um, blood tests, early uh, screening tests for cancer. And we're actually making some of that available to our members, again, in a pilot setting to understand it better and then to influence our thinking in the future about what is the right population. And that's an example of something that, you know, we all read about in the press, um, the the financial um, publications write about it. It's going to be a, you know, $10, $20 $10, $20 billion business in a few years. And if they're writing that, presumably they think payers like myself, um, my organization are going to pay for it. And in truth, we haven't really thought about that and we're not sure. So uh, that, that said, there's clearly uh, you know, a great headline here. It's something that people want, right? Things like early cancer screening. Why would you not want that? Of course, there's cost, there's false positives, there's a lot of other things. Uh, but I'd rather be prepared and not stick my head in the sand, but get some experience influence, something that I think we're going to have to deal with. Um, another area is digital therapeutics. That's something of enormous opportunity. Um, yet there are so many out there, depending on how you count them. And there's no, obviously, there's no clear definition. There may be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or some would even say more, because there can be a low barrier to entry. Um, that, that, that's a good thing. We're seeing a lot of innovative um, opportunities come to the table, but it also means that it's hard to get the attention of payers or to, uh, to get that kind of evidence that's needed, a little bit of chicken or the egg. So that's an area that we're paying special attention to. And then there, there are um, other cases, um, parsing a little differently, also broadly. Um, behavioral health, we all know, is an issue. We, we know that there are insufficient providers therapists and others to take care of patients. And, um, you know, that's true, particularly given the stress that the pandemic has um, unearthed, but frankly, it was a problem before that. So behavioral health, uh, substance use disorder, all of the um, things that that are are coming out and we're realizing more common than we ever wanted to think about, but which we're not treating adequately. 
And that's a case that we have special interest in new care delivery models and digital therapeutics and, and anything that can help addre- address what is an overwhelming uh, you know, problem. And then I would also add, again, thinking or cutting uh, a little bit differently, things like health equity. You know, many of us have recognized um, that there are inequities in the healthcare system for a whole variety of reasons that we could talk about. Um, and there are cases, for example, where people don't have access. They may, there's a whole social determinant of health issue. Do they have an understanding of the system? Do they have the ability to get to where they need to go? Do they have the right type of provider who isn't maybe inadvertently discriminated against them? So that creates a whole set of opportunities and a whole opportunity for entrepreneurs with solutions. We ourselves just, um, we're, we're proud to say that Point Thirty Two Health became the first health plan in New England and one of a small number across the country to qualify for health equity accreditation, which is a new accreditation by NCQA. And that really speaks to having the infrastructure and the processes in place to collect the data and use it effectively. But there, there's so much opportunity here to make a difference to the individuals we serve. So I think that's another opportunity. So um, th- those are just a few of the things I'm thinking about. But uh, again, we also hear about things word of mouth relating to innovative telemonitoring companies or predictive algorithms or others um, automating processes such as utilization management. So I think I think there's a world of opportunity out there. Thank you, Michael. I want to reflect a little bit on the, the point in digital therapeutics that you brought up. This is something, as Chad and I are building a digital therapeutics company, this is something that we've definitely run across. And I think we've been focusing on is making sure that we have very strong data that supports the efficacy of our therapeutic solution. Because in an area where it's relatively easier to create a therapy compared to biotech in terms of the cost and timelines that are required, it's very important to differentiate on very strong data and making sure that we have a kind of rigorously developed and rigorously derived evidence that, that supports the efficacy of the solution. I really like the point on the, the role of payers in working with novel therapeutic and diagnostic a solution developers to create financing models that give patients access uh, to these novel inventions in the space of healthcare. And it seems that this is an opportunity for clinicians who are thinking about careers of the beaten path to have a seat on the table where these reimbursement and payment and coverage decisions are being made. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, Michael, and your advice to members of our audience who are possibly interested in careers within payers and kind of similar organizations where they can play a role in creating a novel payment mechanisms and novel reimbursement mechanisms for these solutions and really have a seat on the table. Yeah, so I, I think that's um, a, a really um, a great insight and, and an opportunity. And um, let me answer it broadly first and then a little more narrowly. Um, you know, and broadly, you know, when I went to business school, I was one of three physicians in my Harvard Business School class. And now there's quite a few more. There's an MBA, MDA program. You really had to kind of make it up as you went along. And there was one professor of healthcare, and, and you know, now there's many more. So um, there, there's many more role models. So for those who want to make a difference, there, you know, there is, uh, there are, you know, there are people you can look to who are getting involved. And, um, you know, it's almost a little scary the degree to which some of our top trained uh, physicians are going to business school and doing things that are not clinical. 
but um, the, you know, but that 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 is uh, what is, and there's a you know market for talent, of course. Um, the the other thing I would say um, is that physicians um, tend to be data driven. They tend to be intelligent. They tend to be motivated. So those are all obviously um, great assets. And so you know, one thing many start with is just getting some education. It may be going for a full time MBA like I did, but many others just take courses. Uh, through various organizations, uh, local, you know, business schools and universities may have short programs relating, ranging from a week to exec ed programs that are longer. Uh, there are focused courses from different uh, bodies. So more and more, the, the, those things are available. It's not as hard to figure that out as it used to be. Um, the other thing is many uh, physicians, you know, who are on the, on the, you know, still practicing full time are getting more involved in managing the business side. And again, they're the ones making the decisions um, ultimately on what to prescribe. So to be involved um, either within their practice structure or in negotiations with the payers, um, you know, is a real opportunity. I remember um, a number of years ago, um, we, we sat down and we designed a, uh, a bundle payment mechanism um, for shoulder surgery. And we, we had quite a few meetings. Um, it was I was involved, and we had um, Professor uh, Porter and Kaplan and some of their people from Harvard Business School who've done a lot of the leadership work on that and who te- actually teach classes on that at the table. And then we had also at the table the chief of um, shoulder surgery from both both Mass General and the Brigham. And we did a lot of interesting design work. And again, there was there's a lot of intellectual um, work that goes on, but having the physicians who are leading this at those permanent premier institutions involved and knowing what the right questions are, knowing what's impactable and what isn't is so important. Um, too often you, you have a lot of really intelligent business types trying to come up with different models and they may not understand what is impactable, what isn't, what are physicians, what, what can physicians do, what, what will they do? So having the people involved who are actually seeing the patients is so critical. Perfect, Michael. Thank you. This is incredibly informative. I'm aware of time. So in the interest of time, I'll hand it over to Shad, but I can go for hours here because I'm really enjoying the conversation. But over to you, Shad. Thank you, Alex. And and thank you so much, Michael. This has been a fantastic conversation so far. I've been frantically taking notes very selfishly because it's just insights after insights. But I wanted to reflect on a couple of different things. And there's a lot to really reflect on. I really love uh, what you said about, you know, how you got to become the CMO of Point32. Uh, I always sort of talk to Alex about sort of ever decreasing circles of knowledge and skill set. And what I mean by that is what you mean, which is that at a certain point, you're unique enough that the positions find you and you don't have to even go out and market yourself. And so if you can put yourself in those ever smaller circles, I think you're set up well to sort of succeed broadly defined. I think another thing I wanted to reflect on is the Aduhelm story, which is very depressing for me personally because my mom has Alzheimer's. You know, there's been no new uh, Alzheimer's drugs for 20 years, so people were very, very excited. But then the approval on the rollout has been completely disastrous. And there was actually a Stat Plus article recently in a House congressional investigation that just came out that looked at the internal Biogen records and argued that the FDA's internal process completely broke down. You know, the biostatistics group at the FDA and the neurology groups at the FDA actually internally disagreed on whether or not it should be approved, which I found was fascinating. And they didn't just talk to each other effectively. Just communication, like, frankly, just broke down. And another interesting thing here is that the FDA actually gave it a broad label and not the label for which the studies were done, which was in early stage dementia, because the FDA thought it was, you know, if it worked in early stage dementia, 
and Alzheimer's, it was reasonable to think that it may work in all patients. And then Biogen obviously charged 55K a year, which was sort of the nail on the coffin. Uh, what's interesting about that is they had actually done some internal consulting studies and had talked to a bunch of pairs and physicians and, and showed that the, the maximum number of people getting it would have been maximized if they charged something along 20 to 25K per year. And they would have had less backlash, but they obviously wanted to optimize uh, revenues and they really, really wanted Adjuhelm to be a blockbuster. And so they ended up charging 55K. But what's interesting is that the CMS obviously fought back and, and said that we're not going to you know, reimburse this or cover this, at least not for people outside of investigational trials. And so I'm just curious how this is going to end up affecting uh, other drugs in this class, like lecanemab, which does have better data and uh, other Eli Lilly drugs. Uh, I guess time will tell, but this is something that's been sort of top of mind for me. Yeah, this, uh, this is really a fascinating case study. Um, and, and fortunately, it's, it's more the exception than the rule. Um, you know, Biogen ultimately is a great company that has a lot of, done a lot of good work and has other things in the pipeline. So um, I think mistakes were made, but we shouldn't lose sight of that. And we also, um, again, the goal here is not to say no to Alzheimer's drugs. It's that we want there to be a safe and effective drug. So, um, it, you know, everyone needs to just ground themselves in that regardless. Um, the story with aducanumab, you know, again, it's unusual. Um, the, the examples you gave, um, the fact that um, payers like myself said no to it, even though there was no other choice. Uh, but, I mean, you know, there were so many things wrong with that picture, including the fact that the FDA um, panel voted um, not to approve it. Right. They thought it, and the FDA actually overruled them and did the, the opposite, despite the, the near unanimity of that. And then they had people resigning and the like. So, I mean, that's not a good look for the FDA either. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's just not a good picture and not how things should work. The other thing I would say is um, the pricing was um, somewhat, say, excessive. And, it, you know, we're pro- probably not going to get into a debate on that here. But had the pricing been less I think it's more likely that the payers would not have gone out on a limb and said, um, you know, we're not going to cover it. They, they might have said, we don't recommend it, um, but let's see what the providers want to do. There was such outrage on the part, not just the payers, providers, even patient groups, that, that, that again, it was, it was a very unusual situation. And to your point, they approved the label more broadly, which is problematic um, because we, we, you know, we're, there really is a lack of evidence what happens in that group. In fact, because the way the data was cut, um, there's lack of agreement what impact it had, even in those who were studied. But when you come up with a broader label, you create the problem. And this is as much a safety issue as, as anything in that you can be sure, you know, we're not sure what happens in that group. But the safety concerns, which were up to 40 percent having that brain swelling and bleeding, um, was, was real. So the idea that we should cover something with unclear benefits um, but known risks is uh, was not one that got a lot of support. Um, I do hope there are other, to your point, there are other drugs in the horizon, and um, you know, and I I hope they're successful. But to your point on the FDA um, approach there, um, and I was part of some meetings uh, with CMS and the and the FDA on this, so I, I you know I have some insights. Um, and, you know, they, you know, they, they were interested in, in the broad uh, question of coverage with evidence development, which means different things to different people and, you know, doesn't necessarily mean what I, I would take it to mean in the broadest sense. However, um, you know, in, in this case, they realized that they just approved it and then said, let's see what happens. They, that because a lot of these specific cognitive tests are not routinely done 
at, at visits and with neurologists that they probably wouldn't get the needed data. So I don't know that I would view some, some view their approach as punitive. I think it was a recognition that had they just put it out there, um, claims data and other types of data that they frequently have access to through claims information, perhaps the HRs wouldn't answer the question of whether it worked easily. So that that's why they they put it, took the unusual uh, step of requiring it to be in a clinical trial setting. Yeah, no, that's incredibly helpful, Michael. I think another thing here to consider is the accelerated approval pathway, obviously, the pathway they initially took and what sort of implications for other drugs and, and for other innovators that has. I think one thing that I wanted to quickly mention is, as you mentioned, the external FDA panel, I think three of them ended up resigning. One of them was Dr. Aaron Kesselheim, who was recently at HBS, who gave a vigorous talk about the IRA, which is what we're going to talk about next. Uh, So it's a nice segue. A lot of things happened in, in 2022, obviously. The No Surprises Act, for example, was rolled out. That's the act that you know prevents uh, patients getting stuck out of network surprise bills. And there's been a lot of you know logistic issues between the insurer and the provider between on how to calculate the the payments and the third party arbitration sort of backlogs. But an even bigger news might be the Inflation Reduction Act, and and that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. For those of our audience members that may not know, the IRA allowed federal price negotiation of you know maximal. Uh, fair prices for selected drugs under Medicare Parts B and D and permitted capping of out-of-pocket costs. Patent life of certain drugs and classes of drugs were also affected. And as I mentioned, I'm thinking back to the recent HBS conference that housed a panel uh, on the IRA, and there was vigorous and uh, some would say personal <laughs> debate. Proponents think that you know the IRA will help get costs uh, and perhaps the utilization of drugs uh, under better control, whereas opponents uh, of the IRA, uh, especially in the pharma industry, have said that this will modify their R&D and return on uh, investment calculus, ultimately ensuring that they won't fund as many projects and hurting future drug development and patients. For those that may not know the implications of the IRA, Michael, can you briefly touch upon, and we know how Medicare feels about these elements of the IRA, but as a commercial pair, do you think that these drug statutes in the IRA are ultimately helpful or not? Yeah, you know, it's funny. You mentioned some of the things that proponents and opponents of the IRA have discussed, and I think many of them are true. And, you know, I I will say, although I am at a pay um, you know, at this point in my career, I think part of why I've been successful is I try to look at things from a central approach. Again, it's not about saying no, it's about, in many cases, it's about how do you say yes. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to come up with a knee-jerk response of it's, it's good or it's bad. Um, but, and, you know, and I think what we want is a well-functioning ecosystem. Um, one, one of the things that's unusual about healthcare, whether it's a No Surprise Act or some others, is in certain industries, you can kind of get away, if you would, with take as, get as much as you can. In healthcare, because of the social impact, the fact that many individuals do not pay for it, and a lot of it's paid by the government, et cetera, um, and by employers, it, it goes beyond that. And, and I think that this is an example of where the perception that certain players uh, are not being good corporate citizens, so to speak, um, that you're inviting some sort of regulation. And, um, you know, so it's, it's kind of different. Even the idea that, you know, private equity firms um, invest in, um, you know, in certain type of organizations like emergency medicine or anesthesiologists, et cetera. Um, and then, and again, they're not doing anything illegal. Uh, they're, they're, they may be following good business practicing a niche and exploiting it. However, when that leads to a group in a hospital 
which would historically be part of the network in the hospitals and network in the surgeons. And the, you know, in some cases, patients get bills from anesthesiologists, which are more than the cost of the surgery. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't serve anyone well. And I say that as someone who's an anesthesiologist, um, that, you know, probably isn't a good thing. So for the IRA, um, again, I think it's well-intended. I think that there's likely to be unintended consequences. Um, at the end of the day, though, um, I think it's a result of frustration on, on many parties that we're not working together to try to solve for long-term affordability. Um, so, you know, f- first of all, there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding. So one aspect, it caps on insulin, for example, at $35. Um, insulin does not cost $35. Just want to be clear. Um, what it actually means is it caps the copay for an individual at $35. So if an individual is paying less, that means everyone else is paying more in terms of it and it ends up impacting insurance premiums. And again, that isn't, I don't want to even say that's bad. I don't want to say it's good or bad, but you're making a choice. So when you're making that policy decision, you're also making a policy decision that the, the, the pool, the insurance pool, everyone is going to subsidize it. Again, to the extent that we do that for things around screening, uh, like colonoscopies and mammograms and certain types of drugs, et cetera, that, you know, that's, it's not bad policy, but you are impacting the premium. We just want to be clear on that. Um, the, the second point I'd make is, um, again, that this may very well impact the calculus for um, innovative companies. And having fewer years to recoup um, that investment, you know, it, it may limit access to new medications and medications that we'd like to see. So we, we shouldn't discount that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, it's been pointed out to me by finance professors that the cost of capital for early stage drug research can exceed 30%. So when they're doing their model, it's got to work. And, and I think we need to be sensitive to that. Um, I'll, I would also say that although there are aspects that will save money and reduce spending, um, the impact on commercial insurers is unclear. And uh, why do I say that? Well, for, for starting uh, as a starter, although after nine or 13 years, depending on whether you're small molecular or biological, with certain um, constraints can kick in, it doesn't actually address the launch price. So theoretically, a pharma company could come up with a, a earlier a higher launch price, which actually harms short-term affordability. The other thing to be clear is that this applies to Medicare, not commercial. And there is some evidence that when um, government uh, business, Medicare, Medicaid, leads to rate reductions for providers, they cross-subsidize and try to make it up on the commercial insurers. Again, they've got to run viable businesses. So it, it, the impact on commercial uh, insurers and business isn't very clear at the moment. Um, I, I personally am more of a free market kind of person, again, being an HBS grad, and we'd love to see us all come together and find solutions that work for everyone and allow all parties to be rewarded fairly for the innovative work that's being done, but also think about how do we come up with a sustainable system. And I think we can do that, but it's it's, it's hard. Thank you, Michael. Incredibly insightful answer and another element to think about. You know, I grew up in, in Canada and my folks are still at Canada. And, and generally speaking, people are happy with the healthcare system here. It's run by the, the federal government and the state governments. But drugs do come to the U.S. generally faster because pharma companies you know, do tend to make their money back on R&D, which can run up to two to three billion dollars nowadays on each drug from the U.S. market and everything else like Canada, the European market tends to be sort of just icing on the cake. I'm simplifying a little bit, but there is that element to sort of consider. I was taking my mom 
to the family physician recently and asking about uh, Alzheimer's drugs, including lecanemab, which is coming down the pipeline, and aduhelm, and these aren't approved yet here in Canada. Um, another element that you mentioned, which is interesting, is that I usually would have thought that with reduction in Medicare prices, payers may now have more, or commercial payers may now have more leverage because they can, they can anchor on a price that's lower, and then you know maybe it's 1.25x or 1.5x of the Medicare prices. But ultimately, there's going to be a push from the manufacturers to increase the commercial prices because, again, like you said, they have to live and they have to run sustainable businesses. So I guess there's a trade-off there. I think the last thing I wanted to, the last question I wanted to uh, ask you, uh, Michael, is about mentorship. This is something that's very, very important to, to our audience members. It's an essential part of every entrepreneur's journey and really everyone's journey. And, and you talked about how back in the day, there weren't many MD, MBAs and not as many role models. We've heard this from, from many individuals who've been on our podcast. But I'm curious, who are your mentors in your life and how did you pick them? And, and now that you're on the other side of mentoring others, how do you think about mentoring young dogs looking to venture off the beaten path? Yeah, so um, you know that's an important question. And again, things have changed. It's become easier. And, and again, there's more formal programs um, even, um, you know, so, you know, for myself, again, there were very limited um, good mentors on the business side, even physicians who were in a leadership role. Sometimes it just kind of gone into organically, did some things right, did some things that could have been done better. Um, one of my earlier mentors was actually uh, an academic, uh, a professor, Regina Herzlinger. And uh, Reggie, I mean, she's still the person I go to for advice uh, now if I'm trying to make a decision or when I've had a career uh, question or, or, or something. And I um, have the privilege of even giving uh, talks in her class, um, which, and which is kind of amazing because I was always in awe thinking that the people in front knew everything. And now I realize um, not necessarily, but uh, so she, you know, she's been a, um, you know, really um, a force to be reckoned with. Um, and of course, um, you know, now there is a whole healthcare um, group at, at Harvard uh, Business School, and I have the fortune of serving on the advisory board of the Healthcare Initiative. But back then, it was just Reggie, and I was fortunate that she was willing to invest time and, um, and energy and, and being a resource. In fact, um, the first job after HBS was with a company uh, that people may not have heard of. It was called Total Renal Care. Um, and after some acquisitions and growth, they're now called DeVita. And that was my first job. And it was my first role. In fact, there were myself and three classmates went to this small company that no one had heard of because the CEO came as a speaker in the class and we exposed him and we were all amazed by the opportunity. So, um, you know, so yeah, it's important having the mentorship and the exposure. Um, I also, um, so I, you know, now there are just people you meet organically, you can ask, um, or sometimes they just kind of emerge. Um, but there's also programs, uh, for example, AHIP, the uh, Trade Association for Health Plans, has had a mentorship program for years, the executive leadership program, and I volunteered for a number of years to mentor an emerging physician executive. So there are also formal programs that may exist in different um, in different organizations. The other thing I would say would be the, the concept, um, which you didn't ask about, but I think an, an as important concept, uh, the idea of having a personal board of directors. So, you know, being a mentor is kind of a big, um, you know, time commitment and, and that can be challenging to 
get someone to agree to be a formal mentor or to find the right person. But, you know, as you grow, you meet people who you really value and who may value your input. And, and you know, I, I like the idea of having the, what some call a personal board of directors, a list of, you know, five or eight names or whatever, who when you're looking at a challenge and making a decision, should you make a career move or, or, or something else or go back and get another educational degree, people you can turn to and solicit their input. So, um, again, as, as we grow and see more physicians getting this kind of education, it also means there's more of that kind of network effect. So I think it's a very positive and speaks well to our ability to, um, you know, to um, see additional physician leadership. And then many hospitals, um, I know that locally, hospitals like Mass General and Brigham have their own programs where they've made education available to many of the physicians who have more business degrees and created their own internal mentorship programs. So even many institutions um, are looking to do that as, as a way to grow this kind of expertise in-house. Thank you, Michael. I absolutely love that answer. And I just wanted to double down on how excited I was to attend Regina Herzlinger's class. I was actually signed up for two of her classes at HBS uh, during the last semester there and, and was very excited to learn more about consumer-driven healthcare, which she obviously pioneered. But the classes, unfortunately, ended up getting canceled. Uh, so I ended up taking other really uh, awesome healthcare classes with professors like Ariel Stern. Another thing I wanted to reflect on really quickly is uh, HBS's long connection with DaVita. I think the current CEO, Javier Rodriguez, is an HBS grad, and, and a lot of HBS grads historically have gone to work at DaVita. Usually not for Zenius, uh, but DaVita for yes, sure. Yes, because that relationship. Yeah, I mean, and Javier joined, um, I think... Um, a year or two after I did. Um, so, you know, we, there was a small group. All, all of the uh, biz dev people were either from HBS or in some cases from UCLA since it was based in LA at the time. So it was a, it was a nice environment. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Michael. This has been a great conversation. But to finish us off, how can our audience learn more about you and the impact that you're having and, and how can they follow your work, Michael? Well, you know, I, I do tend to post on LinkedIn and occasionally tweet. And, um, you know, a lot of the work we do, um, and it's myself and my team, I've got a great team of, of innovative people who, I, who fortunately I get to work with. Um, and, you know, we, we tend to do a lot. In, uh, we get a lot of attention either speaking or interview. So even if you go in and Google some of this, my name or Point Through New Health and, and any of these, Grail or Gene Therapies and the like, uh, you, you'll find a lot of material out there. Or follow, again, follow on LinkedIn. But, um you know, it's just great that we have these means and, and that it's not as hard as it used to be to get information. So, um, you know, love the speed of, of information flow here. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. You're welcome. Wow, what a great discussion with Michael Sherman. This was one of my favorite episodes. I think the reason why the discussion with Michael was so insightful for a variety of reasons, but he mentioned specifically how opportunities came his way as he sort of excelled in his career and became more and more senior. Certainly for most of us, especially in the early stages of our career, generating opportunities either on the beaten path or off the beaten path feels like an uphill battle, sometimes a slog, as people have said. There may be, you know, 40 people clamoring for one exciting opportunity, and it seems like more often than not, opportunities sort of get away. But, you know, if you follow the 
trajectory of people's lives and people's progress, you realize that as you progress through your career and you develop either a niche expertise or expertise in the intersection of disciplines, for example, at the intersection of business and healthcare or healthcare and law, what I've personally realized watching people is that your skill set and knowledge base become unique enough that positions often find you. And so the balance of power and the supply demand dynamics seem to change. And sometimes it changes gradually and sometimes it feels like it changes overnight. I had one of my mentors tell me that, you know, for the longest time I had mentors and then all of a sudden I just became mentors to other people. At least it feels that way to some people. And so as you progress in your career and you develop those niche skill sets and, and knowledge bases, what happens is that now there may be only one job that's relevant, but only five people who have those relevant skill set. And so I always tell physicians having an MD is helpful because it signals to industry or whoever the stakeholder is, it signals to them that you're intelligent and that you're hardworking. But oftentimes that's just not enough. That can be enough to open the door, but it's often not enough to actually like keep generating opportunities and moving up in a meaningful way. You have to separate yourselves from others in other ways as well. Uh, and the most organic way to do that is by identifying what drives you, finding opportunities in that domain and developing expertise there and becoming known for it. And again, the opportunities then start to come your way because you start putting yourself in increasingly small circles. Uh, but that was my takeaway that was inspired by, you know, Michael's conceptualization of how opportunities came his way after a certain point. And I'll pass it on to uh, Alex for his takeaways. Thanks, Shad. Great, great takeaways as usual. So generally, my takeaways are around the discussion that we've had on transformational therapeutic and medical uh, solutions slash products for which we don't have currently established ways of coverage. So generally, there can be huge uncertainty around the coverage for those solutions and around making that decision for coverage as a healthcare leader or as a healthcare insurer, especially given the high price tag of those solutions. Michael talked about this idea of perspective taking when making coverage decisions that can impact a large number of patients. He specifically mentioned that his true north is the question, would I want to make this new treatment or this new product available to myself and my family members if we ever need it? So he puts himself, he puts his family in the perspective of a patient to try to develop that empathy. And I feel this perspective taking exercise can help us expand our thinking as leaders and consider the perspective of uh, patients who are the end recipients of these interventions that we want to cover, especially that we may not have the lived experiences of those patients. So I felt kind of that discussion was quite insightful and I wanted to share it with the audience. Uh, but to the audience out there, join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next time.